0: We are um, continuing our study tonight through the book of Numbers, and Numbers is essentially a book about a road trip. Um, In fact, it's even a book about a road trip gone bad. Um, And where we're at in the book right now, where we'll pick up again tonight as we pick up in chapter six, uh, there hasn't been any movement yet. In fact... uh, through the book of Le- Leviticus, back all the way into the book of Exodus, all of those chapters, all the way back to the giving of the law in Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, there's been no movement. In fact, if you were to just start reading in Genesis and read the Bible through to where we are tonight, it's very possible that you've forgotten where we're going because we've been stalled for so long. But the portion we're in tonight is the final piece before the trip actually begins. Um, and it's similar to what's going on in my house right now. Uh, My family and I are leaving for a trip tomorrow, and so that means there are currently winter coats on the table. Uh, My wife did a fresh rotation and install of all the car seats. She's got a shopping list prepared. It's all of the prep work. That's the passage that we're in tonight. It's all of the final things to make sure this moving presence of God in the tabernacle is completely up and running and functioning safely before they actually step out on their journey. And so... Um, it can be difficult to read the first 10 chapters of Numbers, which we started last week and will finish this week, um, because it it feels so scattered and irrelevant. Not much seems to be happening, it's just addressing a whole bunch of things, but what it really is, is going through a full systems check before they press ignition, okay? And so we're going to pick up in chapter 6, in verse 1, With the vow that was taken by the Nazarites. And so we read here in Numbers 6, verse 1 The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. Now I want you to notice that as this passage begins, it doesn't actually tell us what we're talking about. It doesn't say... Let me tell you about a Nazarite vow and explain what that is. It says when someone takes a Nazarite vow, and then it explains what's required, okay? What that shows us is that already in Israel's understanding is the significance of this vow, the significance of this role, and it's just here being legislated, okay? The word Nazarite just comes from the Hebrew word Nezer, which means to set apart or to consecrate. Okay. And so it's just a vow of separation, of consecration. I want you to notice as well there in verse 2, it says when either a man or a woman makes a special vow. Now as we've been looking at Israel, we've found that there is a division of labor that is divinely ordained. Okay. And so in the 12 tribes of Israel, God has selected one tribe, the Levites, to be responsible for the stuff that involves the tabernacle. And so as we saw, many of the Levitical families are given the responsibility of carrying certain instruments of the setup and teardown of the tabernacle. And one family in particular, the family of Aaron, has been anointed as the priests. Okay? And so you can't go uh, to school to become a priest. You don't apply for the job. In fact, if you're born as a Levite, your job as a Levite is already determined, okay? These roles are determined. In the same way, going all the way back to Genesis 49, uh, it's proclaimed that it's through the tribe of Judah that the primary unified nation of Israel's leadership is going to come from. There will be a king, and when the king comes, he will come from just this one tribe, when you look at the prophets throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are called by God. Once again, they don't, uh, they aren't voted into office. They're not chosen except for the fact that they're chosen by God. In fact, it's fascinating as you read the Old Testament, how many prophets don't want the job. And so God comes to Jeremiah and says, Jeremiah, before you were born, I selected you. And as I was forming you in your mother's womb, I formed you for a purpose. And here's what it is. And Jeremiah says, I'd really rather not. Okay. Jonah's given a mission. I want you to go to Nineveh and proclaim judgment against the Ninevites. And Jonah goes, I think I'll pass. But for all of these things that were issues of election, places where God has chosen, this is the first place that it points out that anyone who desired to could enter themselves in a significant way into the service of the Lord, okay? Nazarites were not selected by God. Nazarites were not from a particular tribe, the tribe of Nezer. It says here, any man or woman who desires to make a special vow, okay? And I think this is very significant because when we read the Old Testament, there's such a focal point set on the prophets and on the priests and on the kings, there's such a focal point set on kind of the main characters of the drama, we can forget that most of Israel is not those people. That the Israel that God constantly talks about loving, about leading, about having a plan for, about having a desire to bless, are business as usual, everyday folk, I think we often make the same mistake in the modern world. We have a tendency to see uh, certain roles, jobs, positions, and callings as being uh, divinely appointed and more important. And so sometimes we feel like it's pastors or preachers or missionaries who do the ministry to the benefit of us normal Christians. But as we see here in the Old Testament and as we regularly see in the New Testament, just read the book of Acts, God loves to use everyday normal people. And so he sets up here a way for anyone who just loves God to such a degree that they want to kick it up a notch, step in deeper, offer themselves for a period of time or permanently as set apart for the Lord. Now, we see here that in the legislation for the Nazarite vow, there's going to be a couple of things they need to avoid. And the first one, it says in verse three, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. Now, if we stop stop there, we would expect that what God is saying here is, okay, if you're going to be consecrated to me, drinking is out. But what's significant is that it doesn't stop there okay both wine and strong drink speak of alcohol but it continues and it says he shall also drink no vinegar and the word there is just the usual word we would use for vinegar okay so it's it's fermented but it's not high in its alcohol content in fact it continues on and it says that he won't drink any grape juice or even eat grape grapes or even raisins when they're dried. In fact, notice how extreme it is in verse four. All the days of his separation, he'll eat nothing that's produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or skin, which I don't think is a temptation for any of us, right? That's the emphasis. It adds the seeds and skin, not because there's some sort of weird Eastern delicacy, because that's the distance they're supposed to keep. They're not even to be around the parts that everybody else spits out, Okay. That's the idea here, and so we have to ask ourselves, what is so significant about this? And it does mention alcohol, and it's worth pointing out uh, that there is the danger of being so either intoxicated or all about drinking that there's no room for this type of consecration. In fact, in Ephesians, it tells us specifically, speaking to Christians, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Okay? When it uses the phrase filled with the Spirit, it's talking about being under the influence. You have to choose what's controlling you what's empowering you and Paul says if you get to choose what controls you instead of choosing a drug choose the spirit God has given you the one who you've been sent for liberty the one who enables you to be more Christ-like the one who is a gift that Jesus died for so that you could obtain but by stressing further beyond alcohol it's appropriate to ask what's the big deal here And the only thing that I've been able to come across in suggestions from scholars on trying to make sense of this um, actually I think is a pretty important one. There are many different types of agriculture, but they all function very differently. And vineyards in particular are difficult because you don't actually get anything to show for all your labor for multiple seasons, usually at least three, okay? So here's the point. A vineyard is an expression of permanency. It's an expression of being at home. Now, it's worth mentioning here how strange this whole conversation is because they're in the wilderness. Nobody's planting a vineyard in the book of Numbers, okay? But it does stand in for this kind of personification of permanence. In fact, some of the expressions of the land that they're going to, this promised land that God has given, this land of milk and honey, is a land full of vineyards a land where there will be fruitfulness. In fact, wine in the Old Testament is often a picture of joy and celebration of a great harvest. So there's a recognition of separation here, not between good and bad, but a recognition in some sense that the Nazarite is saying, this is not my home. In some sense, it's an expression of a pilgrim, somebody who's just passing through. It's a recognition that the things of this life are fine, but for now, for the season in my life, I'm going to abstain for them because I have something more important, something better, something greater. It continues here, and we see another thing here in verse 5. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of his hair on his head grow long. So the second thing is, first, no great products. Second, no haircuts. Okay. Now, clearly, the only thing that this significantly points to is visibility. Now, if you're a woman and you take a Nazarite vow, it may take a while for that vow to show. But if you're a man, against the shorter haircuts of everyone on the street, everyone is going to see you and recognize visibly and publicly that you've taken this vow. The way that the, uh, the ancient Near East, the context that the Bible was written in, talks about hair is generally an expression of virility, of life, of the energy that flows in you because it continues to grow all the time. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but scientifically, even after you die for a little bit, your hair keeps growing, Okay. So if you dug up the last person you know who passed away, they're going to look shaggier than when you last saw them, okay? And so the ancient Near East saw hair as being this expression of life energy, and once again this points um, to that dedication, okay, to a visible sign of that dedication, and then there's one more part in verse 6. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother or his brother or his sister if they die, Uh, shall he make himself unclean because his separation to God is on his head, okay? And so this is pretty extreme. In fact, now that we've seen all three, we can make some comparisons. This is a vow of separation. It's a distinguishing mark of holiness, of being set apart for God. But Nazarites aren't the only holy uh, status people in the Old Testament. The Levites, had certain holiness requirements, the priests had certain holiness requirements, and the high priest had certain holiness requirements, and many of them touch on these same things. So for example, the priests were not allowed to take any alcohol while they were on the job, okay? So while they were working, we're told in the book of Leviticus, they're not allowed to touch alcohol, but the Nazarite goes beyond that. You're not allowed to touch grapes, In the same way, they're told that they're not allowed to shave their head, the Levitical priests, the sons of Aaron, okay? But here, they're not even allowed to cut their hair. And then finally, with death, um, the Levites could go to any funeral of an immediate family member, but could not attend any other funeral without being unclean. And the high priest, the only death that he could associate himself with for the duration of his office, which is lifetime. Okay, which is his adult life, is the death of his wife. If it's his mother, or his father, or his brother, or his sister, he has to maintain the distance. But here with the Nazarite, it's total separation from death. Okay. Now, as we saw in the book of Leviticus, the symbolism of how the Old Testament handles death has to do with the fact that it goes against the grain of God's original design. Okay. And so the God who is life and life giver can't be in the context of where there is death. And so in this place, this tabernacle where God dwells, there's a distance that's kept with death. And anything that it interacts with death needs to be put back into a state of cleanliness and uh, ritual purity before entering back into the tabernacle. Now it's worth mentioning, as we'll see in just a second, if the Nazarite does encounter Uh, somebody who has died, whether accidentally or actually chooses to attend his family's funeral, it's not like he's struck dead, okay? But his vow now has to be reinstated because it's been interrupted. In fact, many commentators believe that the way this is laid out, he actually has to go back to the beginning. So what you should imagine here is a Nazarite goes, I want to give the next three years of my life to God as a Nazarite. And so he takes the vow. What if on Two years and 363 days in he encounters a corpse. He would have to go through this cleansing process that we'll read about just, uh, just, uh, in just a second. And then he would start at the beginning again. He would have to do a fresh three years. In fact, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian who wrote just after the days of Jesus, actually records a particular Jewish convert, a queen in fact, who had a seven year Nazarite vow that was almost fulfilled and started over from the beginning. So it's significant um, to understanding how this passage works. But every one of these is escalated a little bit, and it's uh, it's helpful to notice that one of the reasons is because this is voluntary, okay? Nobody has to do this, and definitely this isn't something you want to take lightly if you're currently caring for your elderly parents, okay? This isn't something that you should enter in swiftly or quickly, but as we've seen, there's, there's a symbolism to the office, Because the Nazarite isn't just going through these motions arbitrarily, he's saying things about who God is. There's a significance in these things. Now, it's not just from history that we know of Nazarites, um, but also from the Bible itself. And so there's three people, uh, three people who live under long-term, maybe even permanent Nazarite vows. Um, Only one of them is labeled that, which is in uh, the book of Judges, chapter 13. Don't worry about turning there, but I'll I'll explain. There's a man named Manoah. And in the book of Judges, Israel is now in the land, but there's lots of enemies in the land, and they've been going through this cycle of rebelling against God, of God bringing discipline on them by letting their enemies triumph over them, of crying out to God, and then God raising up a deliverer. Those are the Judges. So we have people like Gideon, we have people like Deborah, we have people uh, like Samson. And Samson's mother and father are childless. And so in Judges chapter 13, Manoah is the man's name, Manoah's wife is out and suddenly an angel appears and he says, you're going to have a child. And from this point on, for the rest of the pregnancy and all of his life, he's to abstain from anything that comes from the vine, just like a Nazarite vow. He is a Nazarite for his life. And of course, that is the judge Samson. And so he's set apart for a particular reason, to be the deliverer of Israel. And if you read the story of Samson through this lens of the Nazarite vow, it's kind of a very sad story. Because it's supposed to be a position of consecration and dedication, and it reads a lot more like a fraternity pledge. Samson, in fact, is constantly fiddling around with the margins of this vow. And so he comes upon a corpse of a lion, and there's bees that have taken over the corpse and made it their hive. And he goes, that honey looks good. And he eats honey from the corpse of a lion, okay? That's a weird thing to read at all. It's especially weird for Samson. Remember where it kind of comes to a head is finally after the temptation of this woman Delilah over and over again, Samson finally confesses the reason why he's so strong and God uses him so greatly is because he's a Nazirite and so he's not supposed to cut his hair and in doing that it's kind of the final straw and so he's taken, his eyes are put out, he's put into slavery for the rest of his life. But Samson is a Nazirite, one from birth. Destined to be so. Another one, although the title isn't used, it seems to play out in the same way, involves a later judge who was also a prophet, a man named Samuel. Okay, now once again, Samuel comes from a mother who had no children, in fact, was barren. And so she was praying that God would give her a son, and she said, If you give me a son, I will give him back to you. I will dedicate him to the tabernacle, and he will serve here all of his days. And so Samuel is devoted to the Lord from his birth out of celebration of answered prayer and his life is focused on serving God in a very significant way. Not only does he operate as the final judge of Israel and to some degree the first prophet of Israel, but he's also the one who anoints both uh, both Saul and David. He's a major player in God's plan to move towards the kingdom that he had promised. Another character that we see in scripture that has Nazarite tendencies is John the Baptist. And you may remember that John the Baptist story also begins with a barren woman, a woman named Elizabeth, who's in her old age and has never had a child, and an angel comes to Elizabeth and says, your son is going to be set apart for what I've called him to. And she, he also calls Elizabeth for her son to abstain all form of wine. In fact, when we meet John as an adult, his uh, aestheticism is pretty extensive, right? He always wears goatskin and he eats wild locusts and honey and has moved himself out of society and is living out in the wilderness and is preaching that the Messiah is coming. So these are the Nazarites. They're, they're, um, here it's a voluntary vow for those who want to significantly serve the Lord. And it's also one that we see that God uniquely uses throughout, uh, throughout the Bible at integral, important places. It is also possible that Paul takes a Nazarite vow in the book of Acts. It's not labeled as such, but because he shaves his head and brings offerings at the temple, most likely that's what's going on. Now, one last thing I want to say before we move forward is, why would somebody take this vow? As we've mentioned, one of the reasons is just out of desire. I want to serve you. I want to be devoted to you. For this period of time, I just don't want to do anything else. This is what I want to do. But another reason vows were often taken uh, was in, uh, in exchange for the fulfillment of, fulfillment of prayer requests, like Hannah. Right? Hannah said, if you give me this child, I will give him back to you. And so oftentimes the Nazarite vows were, were, um, were made in circumstances that were somewhat dire or difficult or hard. And out of a celebration of God answering the prayer, they responded as an act of worship by taking a Nazarite vow. Now, verse 9. If any man dies very suddenly beside him and defiles his consecrated head, he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall shave it. Okay, and so you see here, if he does encounter death, and we can assume if he encounters any other type of uncleanness, the process would be the same, he has to shave his head, and then seven days uh, uh, he shaves it again. And on the eighth day, verse 10, he'll bring two turtle doves or two pigeons to the priest to the entrance of the tent of the meeting, and the priest shall offer one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering, and make atonement for him, because he sinned by reason of the dead body. Now, that verse is actually really important, and I'll tell you why. Because we read it, and we go, wait, how is it his fault that that guy dropped dead, right? And that's exactly right. The word here for sin is the most common word for sin, and it's also the most broad. In fact, I'll give you a a place where it's used that's very illustrative. Later on in the book of, I believe, 1 Kings, it might be 1 Chronicles, there's a Uh, Army of Elite Sling Soldiers, okay, so not slingshot, but a sling is like a piece of leather, a leather pouch at the end of two long strings that you wave around your head and you release one side and it throws a stone, and it says that they could hit a target at a certain distance without missing what that verse says for the word missing there is the same word here used for sin, hatat. Okay? It means to miss the mark, to fall short. Okay? So the idea here is that he didn't live up to his vow. It's not necessarily or inherently an expression of guilt, but it's a recognition of falling short. Okay? And so he brings these things and he is cleansed through this. But notice what it says at the verse 12. And he'll separate himself to the Lord for the days of his separation and bring a male lamb a year old for a guilt offering, but the previous period shall be void because his separation was defiled. So as I said, he starts at the beginning. Let's continue, verse 13. And this is the law for the Nazarite when the time of his separation has been completed. So what if he fulfills without interruption his vow? How does he exit it? That's the next thing that's legislated, Okay. He shall be brought to the entrance of the tent of meeting and he'll bring his gift to the Lord, one male lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, one ewe lamb a year old without blemish as a sin offering, and one ram without blemish as a peace offering. Now in the book of Leviticus, we learned that the peace offerings um, were basically having a meal with God. And so it's the only meal of the, or it's the only sacrifice of the five that we see in the beginning of Leviticus that the worshiper actually partook of. The burnt offering nobody eats of, that's burned entirely on the altar because it's a recognition of all that I am belongs to you, and so this calf in my place is fully offered to you. Uh, the, uh, the sin offering and the guilt offering, a portion of that was given to the priests for their livelihood. Okay, and probably as a recognition that the sacrifice was received. How do you know your sins are forgiven? Because the priest eats of the sacrifice. He receives it on God's behalf. But the peace offering or the fellowship offering was when you slaughtered an animal to celebrate with God, to enjoy his presence. And usually you would invite your friends or your families or your neighbors to join you because you're killing an entire animal. Okay, and so you would all in the front of the tabernacle celebrate together, have a feast, Okay? And as we talked about in the book of Leviticus, this is kind of the pinnacle of the everyday average Israelites' worship. Okay? All of the other things are gateway sacrifices that put you in a position that you can enjoy fellowship with God. And so we see here, now that the Nazarite vow is fulfilled, the thing that is offered is both a burnt offering and a guilt offering so that he can enjoy, he can celebrate uh, with God. He can enjoy fellowship with God with God. And so, verse 17, he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread that would be eaten by the worshipers and the priests as well. The priest shall offer it as a grain offering and its drink offering, and the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall take the hair from its consecrated head and put it on the fire that's under the sacrifice, the peace offering. And the priest shall take the shoulder of the ram when it's boiled, And one unleavened loaf out of the basket, and one unleavened wafer, and put them on the hands of the Nazarite after he shaved the hair of his consecration. And the priest shall wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Okay, and so these portions are being offered to God, but unlike the other fellowship offerings, first they're laid in the hands of the Nazarite. He's not a priest. He can't make the offering himself, but there's a recognition symbolically that he's bringing this offering to the Lord that's unique because of his consecrated status, okay? And so there's this, there's this aspect of privilege in the ritual that's recognized here. Verse 20, the priest shall wave them for a wave offering, which means he just symbolically pre- presents them to the Lord before they're eaten, Uh, They are a holy portion for the priest together with the breast that's waved and the thigh that's contributed. And after that, the Nazarite may drink wine. Okay, after this, he's no longer in that consecrated position. He can now go back to life as normal. Now, this is why I think that this is significant for us today. Okay. As I mentioned in the beginning, it's worthwhile to recognize that you don't have to be in some particular office or position to desire to serve the Lord, even in a committed or wholehearted way, to sacrifice your time or your plans or even sacrifice things in your life just out of an act of devotion to the Lord. Okay? It may even be appropriate at times uh, to do it as we see with the Nazarites and say, okay, God, I've got this big thing going on. It's really serious to me. If you meet me where I'm at. If you answer my prayers, I will dedicate myself to you. It's interesting that that's how Martin Luther came to be a monk. He was in a significantly bad storm between the city where he was attending school in college and his hometown, and he thought that he was going to die. And so he said, God, if I survive this night, I will give myself to you as a monk, and so it's, it's similar, but there are a few things that are worth pointing out. Most monasticism has been a removal from community, a removal from society. Most aestheticism has involved some form of isolation. You know, it's a person who's not merely a monk but a hermit. We don't see that as an aspect of this at all. This is somebody who's still in the community, involved in the community. And the second thing is, even if it's appropriate to make vows like this, the Bible maintains that we shouldn't do so rashly, okay? Which probably writes off, I'm a little bit scared of the thunder and lightning, so I'm going to make a rash vow to dedicate my whole life to you, okay? But it says in Ecclesiastes that we always need to remember when we talk to God that he is in heaven and we are on earth, which is not just a recognition that God is above us in some sort of locative sense. It's a recognition that God keeps his word, that he's perfect, that we're totally accountable to him, that anything we would offer God is technically already his because he made us. And so we should be careful not to speak flippantly to God. And he goes on in Ecclesiastes and he says, therefore, let your words be few." And he brings vows in particular and he says, never forget that it's better not to make a vow than to make it and to not keep it. Effectively, what he says is God respects you enough to expect you to keep your word, to hold you accountable for the things that you say. And so this is an area we should be careful uh, careful of, but it's also worth pointing that by the time we get to the New Testament, there's a heavy swinging from the few being dedicated to God and used by God to the many. And so instead of, in the Old Testament, where the Spirit comes upon some, a prophet, a king like Saul or David, you know, a particular person like Samson and the spirit of the Lord was upon him and he beat up all of these Philistines, right? Joel tells us there's coming a time when God says that I will pull out my spirit on all flesh, on the manservants and the manservant, maidservants, the high and the low. And significantly on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus has come, has lived and has told his disciples to wait for the fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he says, today is fulfilled what Joel talked about. A relationship that's significant with God, a place where you can serve him and experience him very deeply, is open-ended and all comers are welcome because of what Jesus has done. Okay, and so that's why Peter can pick up the imagery of the Old Testaments and say, you now, Christians, even if you're not Jewish, you are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. What we see here is clearly self-denial, and that's part of what it means, not just to be a, a, you know, an A-string Christian, but a Christian period. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. And so we can look at the Nazarite as a primary example of, of <coughs> what true worship of a God like the God of Israel looks like. It looks like being willing to lay even good things aside for the sake of the Lord. It looks like prioritizing a relationship with God above all other relationships. You remember what Jesus said? He said, if, unless you hate brother or sister or husband or wife, Friend, or even yourself, in comparison to me, then you cannot be my disciple. Right? If you're going to follow Jesus, Jesus has to come in an extreme way first. And there's this public reality of it. There's this visibility. Now, I don't think you can make a direct correlation between long hair of the Nazarite and a WWJD bracelet. Okay. In fact, there's an occasion later on in the history of Israel where these two and a half tribes who have decided, we're going to live close to the promised land, but not in it. They recognize they've got a problem. That after generations and generations of this, the people who are in the promised land are going to go, maybe they're not really Jewish. Maybe they're not really God's people. Because after all, if they were God's people, they'd be in the land, not outside of the land. So they build this altar and their idea is this altar, will, this pile of rocks will be nice and visible and everybody will know that we are Israelites. And it almost causes a war because the other tribes think that that's a place where they're going to offer sacrifices. They think they've just completely forsaken the way the law is supposed to go. But there's a problem in expecting a pile of rocks to speak for you, okay? What was supposed to mark them as an Israelite? Read the book of Deuteronomy. The word of God was to be constantly in their mouths, okay? Their lives were completely different and unique than everyone who lived around them. In that day and age, you could look around the entire ancient Near East and go, Egyptian, maybe a Canaanite or a Babylonian, but you always could spot a Jew. Their whole life was different. The things that they ate and didn't eat, the things that they wore and didn't wore, their normal behaviors, the holidays, all of these things, um... What makes, what makes our commitment to the Lord public is a whole lot more than what we wear, okay? But it's something, it's something that Jesus calls for. It's something that Jesus is very strong about. He says, unless you confess me, the Son of Man, before men, then the Son of Man will not confess you before angels, Faith needs to be public, not because God makes this requirement of you, but because faith is inherently public, or it's not faith. And so that was visible in the Nazarite in the full reality of his life, and it should be in our lives as well. Verse 21, this is the law of the Nazarite. But if he vows an offering of the Lord above his Nazarite vow, as he can afford, in exact accordance with the vow that he takes, then he shall do in addition to the law of Nazarite. And so what this says, this final line is, the offerings that were listed, if he wants to give more, that's up to him. And I think that's something that's important to recognize as we stop talking about the Nazirite here. The idea here is not somebody who's under compulsion. It's not somebody who's being made to do so, or their parents are like, you know what, if you want to get the inheritance, we want you to be a Nazirite for a few years, okay? The idea is somebody who says, I really want to worship God with my whole being. And so if they want to come and sign up for more offerings, when I complete it, I'm not just going to bring that. I'm going to bring a much bigger offering that's allowed. One of the things that I love about God, and we'll see this again in the next chapter, is that he doesn't look, he doesn't look at the value of the gift in the same way that we do. And so, Here, he can offer more, but at the same time, the baseline offering, as we saw, is a pair of turtle doves. That's the offering of the poor. You didn't need to be able to afford a ram to dedicate yourself to the Lord. But if you wanted to give more, then by all means, what we see in the Nazarite is a heart that desires to profoundly worship God. Now, chapter 6 ends with what we call the Aaronic Blessing, not ironic, Aaronic, as an Aaron the high priest. Verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel, you shall say to them. Okay, so when would this blessing be spoken? On the great high and holy days when there's a national sacrifice given, especially the day of atonement. So the high priest goes into this place, he's not allowed any other time, he goes with the blood of the goat, he sprinkles it on the ark for the sins of the whole people. And then he comes out and he speaks these words over the people, okay? We have very ancient artifacts, little three-inch pieces of metal with this blessing written on them that we're pretty sure were probably uh, like, like metal tags that would have been a part of their clothing, okay? So this is a blessing that they went around wearing, that they spoke to one another. If you read the Psalms, versions of this blessing show up almost a dozen times, Okay? It's a common thing, but it's not like our slightly disappearing, but still somewhat around, God bless you. Okay? A blessing to ancient Israel um, was, was not just a desire, like a prayer. A blessing is not a prayer. Okay? It's a proclamation that God will do good. That's what a blessing is in the Old Testament. And so let's look at the words of it together. You'll bless the people of Israel and you'll say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's look at a few parts of this. So first off, notice it's the Lord bless you. The weight of the reason for blessing is on the shoulders of the blesser, not the recipient. Okay. And so, this is spoken over the people as if God is the giver of all blessing. Like uh, it says in the New Testament um, that all good gifts come from the Lord. And so, there's a recognition that the blessings of Israel don't come from their ingenuity, don't come from their surprising amount of holiness. Don't come because they've all got it together. It's the Lord bless you, and his name takes focus here. And then it says, uh, when it says bless you, what is it talking about? Remember that we're talking about Old Testament Israel here, and so we don't have to ask. This isn't a blank check blessing, okay? This isn't the things you wanted for Christmas. The blessings involve here a fruitfulness of the land, that it would produce in a way that was abundant, a blessing of the womb that they would have many, many children and very little loss of life for babies and loss of life of women in labor. Um, Security from their enemies. You can read about this at the end of Deuteronomy. It kind of just lists all of it. Um, These are the blessings that it's speaking of. When it says keep you here, it's talking about protection. When it says may God keep you, the idea is may he keep you safe. May he go before you. May he wall around you and protect you from your enemies. It says, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. And that's a little bit difficult for us to understand as moderns. But the idea here is one of God's favor, as if you can just see him beaming. In fact, it's contrasted in the Old Testament when God does not look upon his people in wrath. When he's not looking at them because his anger is burning hotly. And so the idea here is one of intimacy and joy. And it continues, may the Lord be gracious to you. When God reveals himself to Moses back in the book of Exodus and hides him in the rock and proclaims who he is. I am the God who is loving, kind and compassionate and gracious okay? The source of grace. The recognition here is one of forgiveness. May God forgive you of your sins where you've fallen short. When it says, may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, the idea of peace here is not just an avoidance of hostility or an end of war. The word shalom means that everything is whole. Okay, that, that there's nothing that's incongruent or out of place. It's this vision that's embodied in the promised land, but is so much more. And so when the prophets are trying to express this, they say things that don't even make sense scientifically. They say what God is going to do, the, the shalom that he's bringing on Israel is so significant, you'll be out uh, plowing the field to plant grapes and they'll be growing before the sower even gets there.
1: Okay? Okay.
0: The idea is one where everything is in its right place and the world is as it should be, okay? This blessing is a personification of everything that God has promised Israel going all the way back to Abraham, descendants, land, prosperity. But we need to remember why God is blessing Israel. I told you this blessing comes up in multiple places. Look with me in Psalm 67. The Psalms, as you may remember, is effectively the hymnal of Israel. It's a record of the songs and the prayers that they would sing and say both privately and publicly. And so it often builds on the Pentateuch, the Old Testament first five books, um, in significant ways. It shows us how they thought about those things and how they used them in their worship. And so here in Psalm 67, I want you to notice that it opens with a version of the blessing we just read, but it changes. So what does it say here? May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among the nations. So it starts with the blessing, may Israel be blessed, but why? So that the nations would know who God is. And this is built into, it's by design, it's ingrained in the promise that this blessing speaks of. All the way back when God first promises to bless Abraham. He says, I will bless you and I will make you a blessing. He says, I will bless you and I will bless your descendants. I will curse those who curse you. I will bless those who bless you. And it finishes by saying, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so the, t- the, the final goal of this blessing is not just the well-being of the Israelites, but the accomplishment of God's plan, which is bigger than Israel. Okay? It has to do with all the nations coming to know who God is. In other words, the blessings, of, the blessings given to Israel are finally personified in the coming of the Messiah. Not just peace, but the Prince of Peace. Okay? Not just children, but the child The one that goes all the way back to the promise in Genesis chapter 3. And so it's no surprise that when we get to the book of Ephesians and Paul is talking about Jesus, as a Jew he says that in Jesus Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is available to us. But before we get there we have to notice something. Because Jesus talks about blessings okay he's the one who uses the beatitudes to open his most famous sermon the Sermon on the Mount saying blessed be or happy are those who but when you go over the list it does not look like the list we read in Numbers chapter 6 what does he say he says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled blessed are you when you were persecuted for my name's sake He takes these blessings and he points beyond them. He looks to something different. And that's why Paul doesn't say that every blessing is available in Jesus Christ, but every spiritual blessing. And so what we find in the New Testament is that God is still oriented towards blessing us, but it starts to put the weight in a different place. It starts to put the promises, not in the promised land, but beyond the promised land. It starts to put us in the place of pilgrims. And to some degree, we have more in common with Israel in the wilderness in the book of Numbers than we do with Israel in the land of Israel in the book of Joshua. Because we're waiting for a city whose foundations are sure, the author of Hebrews says, whose maker and builder is God. We're passing through this world and so we look to blessings, not consolation prizes because we don't get the good stuff in life, but something so much more significant. In fact, let me turn you to one more place. Paul here in the book of Philippians is talking about how he views his Judaism. And this is significant because before Jesus, Paul sees himself as one of the special people of God, the chosen ones of Israel. I want you to notice how he talks about those things now. He says this in chapter 3, verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he takes the mark of the old covenant and he says, That's us today as Christians, circumcised or not. Jewish in lineage or not, we're the circumcision because of Jesus and the spirit. But notice how he continues. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. He says, you know what? If we want to play this game, who plays it better than me? He says this, Uh, He says, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the Old Testament law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Now I want you to notice that in this contrast he's about to make, he's not saying that any of those things are bad things. He says something way more significant notice what he says he says but verse 7 whatever gain I had I counted as loss for the sake of Christ indeed I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have suffered loss of all things and now they appear to me as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ okay what we're talking about here is a significant blessing inflation He says, these things don't mean as much to me anymore because I have something better. Let me illustrate this one last way. Recently here, we um, spent seven weeks talking about sex and gender throughout the Bible. And one of the things that we talked about was singleness and celibacy, which Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a good thing. That it can be a good thing that you would have a season or even a permanent singleness in your life. And those are shocking words to come out of the mouth of a Jewish person who saw having children as a commandment to be fulfilled, because that's what it says in Genesis chapter two, be fruitful and multiply, who saw not having kids as evidence of falling short of the blessings of the Old Testament law. Okay barrenness in the old testament is seen as a curse but singleness is now a good thing in Jesus Christ and what I want us to understand tonight is if you're single and if you remain single for the rest of your life your life now like Paul in Philippians 3 says something significant it says the best parts and the best plans of God are fully available to me in Jesus Christ and I need nothing else beyond that for satisfaction and contentment now I know to some degree that's easier said than done But when it's done, it proclaims the total sufficiency and completion of what God has offered us in Jesus Christ. It's a powerful thing. And as we saw in Psalms, the blessing that we read here is a beautiful thing, but God's plans are greater than that. They move beyond that. And so even if we say this blessing to one another, we need to say it with an asterisk. We need to recognize that the blessings we have are so significant, we may not see the same blessings that were promised Israel, but we will see something more. Chapter 7, on the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, the head of their father's houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed, approached. Now, we've already met these 12 men. They're the ones who helped Moses take the census. And now they're back and they're bringing a dedication offering to the Lord, like I said, it's preparatory for their travels. And so now that we have the Levites who are going to carry all of the implements of the tabernacle, they need a way to do so. And so we'll see on the list are carts. Now that they're going to start offering, um, you know, a sacrifice in the morning and a sacrifice in the evening, they need the animals to do so. And so those animals are given here. Okay. And so what we have following uh, is 12 almost identical paragraphs listing the offerings given in 12 days order of each tribe under their chief. Okay? These are the places where we derail in the Old Testament. These are the places where our eyes roll over and we go, what in the world? These are the places where we take the words of Paul when he says in the New Testament that all scripture is beneficial and profitable to us and we go, really Paul? I mean, I don't really feel like I need to make a packing list for a tabernacle anytime soon. And this is so repetitive. Side note, this chapter, chapter 7, is the oldest chapter in the entire Old Testament, except for some Psalm 119. Okay? And so it's worthwhile to go, why in the world does this need to be here? But let's read it. Let's give you a taste before. Let's make you feel the need to answer that question. And so here it says in verse 3, They brought their offerings before the Lord. Six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs, and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle, and the Lord said to Moses, "'Accept these from them, that they may be used in service of the tent of meeting, and give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service.' So Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. Two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service, and four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merai according to their service under the direction of Ithmar, the sons of Aaron the priest." but to the sons of he gave none because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on their shoulder. In other words, the guys who don't get the carts are the ones moving the furniture that have the built-in poles to lift, okay? Continuing here, verse 10, the chief offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed and the chief offered their offerings before the altar and the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offerings one chief each day for the dedication of the altar. Okay, so it's like the 12 days of Christmas but we're not ever going to read five golden rings, okay? It's 12 days of dedication, every one acts exactly the same, the only thing that changes is the day and the one who's offering it, a chief on behalf of his tribe. We're just going to read one, I promise, but the first one here, verse 12. He who offered his offering the first day was Nation, the son of Indemadab, of the tribe of Judah, and his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Both of them full of fine flour, mixed with oil for a grain offering. One golden dish of ten shekels full of incense, one bowl from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of the peace offering, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of nation, the adimadab. Now what happens now, eleven times over, is that exact same listing, Every one of these offerings is exactly the same in weight, in number, in, um, in item. Uh, and so it goes down the list 12 days in a row and then we get, because we need it, a summary uh, in verse 84. This was the dedication offering for the altar on the day when it was anointed from the chiefs of Israel. 12 silver plates, why are there 12? One for each day and one for each tribe. Okay, 12 silver plates, 12 silver basins, 12 golden dishes, each silver plate weighing 130 shekels, and each basin 70, all the silver vessels, 2,400 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The 12 golden dishes full of incense weighing 10 shekels apiece, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, all the gold of the dishes being 120 shekels. All the cattle for the burnt offering, 12 bulls, 12 rams, 12 male lambs a year old with their grain offering and 12 male goats for a sin offering and all the cattle for a sacrifice of peace offering, 24 bulls. The ram, 60, male goats, 60, male lambs a year old, uh, year old, 60. This was the dedication offering for the altar after it was anointed. And so we need to recognize here the incredible repetition that we find in this chapter. Now, usually... Usually, the Bible uses repetition because we aren't good learners. Usually, the Bible says things over and over again because we need to hear them over and over again because we forget. But the problem we have with the repetition here is this stuff inherently, right off the bat, feels irrelevant to us. But there are a couple of things that I want to point out to you that are significant about this. The first is... This may not matter to you today, but it mattered to nation, the son of Adimadab, then. Okay? This is a record of him and his tribe and their gift to the Lord. It also, being recorded not just on some piece of paper, but integrated into the book we call the Bible, shows that God also wanted to recognize this offering. When we read these words and when we name these names, we profess, as a memorial does, a remembrance of these things, okay? Now, I know many of us don't like to read these things, but every time we do, we restate, we proclaim, we, we get in touch with the fact that these are the men and these are the tribes and these are the offerings they brought. And when you read through the Bible about how God feels about the things you give him, you will discover that God keeps track, that he's paying attention, that he balances the books. And it's not so he can know if you've given enough. It's because he recognizes the gift for what it is, an expression of love. Okay. Why do we hold on uh, to, you know, to drawings that our children's draws? Is it because it's a good investment? Right. Someday... Someday this is going to pay off and fetch 450 billion—or sorry, million dollars—like that uh, false uh, Da Vinci did this week, right? The most anyone's ever paid for a piece of art. The last one was a Picasso a few years ago for half that amount, 450 million dollars. That's not why I keep my kids' drawings, right? It's because they did it for me. It's significant because they did it for me and because they're them. And so when we read things like this, we should recognize that God is paying attention. In fact, one of the prophets says that even the tears we cry, God gathers in a bottle. Jesus says, don't you know that every hair on your head is numbered? The recognition here is that God cares about these things. And although we may not care about these things, we should take pleasure in the fact that God cares about our things and the things we give. But there's another thing that's important here, and that's the fact that every list is exactly the same. What we see here is the whole nation of Israel, tribe by tribe, willingly and freely participating in worshiping the God of Israel. And that becomes a very important reminder because, remember, there is this one tribe, the Levites, and they're professional Israelites, right? They have the job. They do the work. They're the ones who are visible. They're the ones who have the special garments. But all of Israel is called to worship God, and here collectively they are called and fulfill, participating, and providing for the tabernacle. The tabernacle is not something to keep the Levites busy. And it's not something because the Levites really want to worship God. The Levites, as we'll see tonight, are standing in on behalf of all of Israel. And so all of Israel is involved in the worship of God. And let me just simply say, let it be so of our churches. Let it be so today. Let this not be something where there is, uh, you know, the people doing the ministry and then the people watching. Let the church never be a spectator sport except for those on the outside. And so, all of this happens, all of these things are laid out, and then notice verse 89, when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. Now, you probably, unless you've been with us for a long time and have a good memory, don't recognize the significance of this verse. But in the book of Exodus, in the last chapter, they dedicate the tabernacle, and God's cloud of presence descends on the tabernacle and it finishes in exodus in saying and moses was unable to enter into the tabernacle and so then we get the book of leviticus that effectively solves that problem with a sacrificial system with a priesthood with a process with holidays with all these things now that the final dedication is in place now moses can enter in and hear from the lord Now God can speak to Moses and guide them through the next phase, through the wilderness. And interestingly enough, look at the first thing that God tells Moses in chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and say to him, when you've set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so, and he set up its lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. And this was the workmanship of the lampstand, hammered work of gold. From its base, its flowers, it was hammered work according to the pattern that the Lord had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. So there's final instructions given here about this golden lampstand that's in the holy place. And effectively what it says is, make sure that the dishes of oil are aimed in such a way that it sheds light across the tent. And it's easy for us to go, why is this here? Interestingly enough, if you go back and read the book of Exodus, first God lays out the entire plans for how the tabernacle is to be designed, and then it goes through it again and we watch as the whole thing is built, and then it goes through it again as we watch the whole thing is assembled. What's interesting is the final concluding statement of the menorah of this golden lampstand is left out in those sections. Okay? And most likely, it's because these lamps were to burn and be lit every evening perpetually. And so this is kind of the last step to do. Okay, it's like... um, uh, That's the total opposite. But all I think of is flipping the last light switch when you're leaving the house. It, It couldn't be more different than that. But it's like that. It's the last thing that needs to be done. Okay. And so, verse 5, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to cleanse them, sprinkle them with the water of purification upon them and let them go with a razor over all their body and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. Now, we already saw in the book of Leviticus when the priests and the high priests were dedicated and started their service. But now we've learned that the Levites, this broader family from the son, from the lineage of Levi, the son of Jacob, has a role to play in protecting the tabernacle so that some foolish, drunk Israelite doesn't wander in and get himself killed, as well as from packing up and carrying the tabernacle from place to place. But they can't do that role until they're dedicated, until they're cleansed, until they're set apart from it. And so that's what we're seeing happen here. And so we see that they wash their bodies, uh, they run a razor over their whole body, so they shave themselves. Verse 8, then let them take a bowl from the herd and the grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil. You'll take another bowl from the herd of a sin offering, you'll bring it to the Levites before the tent of meeting and assemble the whole congregation of the people of Israel. Okay, so this is a public event. All of Israel gathers as much as they can. The Levites are there. They've already prepared. They have the offerings there. Verse 10, when you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Now, maybe you attend a church and you've seen an ordination or a sending out of a missionary where hands are laid on them and they're prayed for and it's kind of a commissioning service. Obviously, there's a relationship here, but it's worth recognizing, although that significance comes later, right here, we only have one significance for the laying on of hands, and that's substitution, okay? With the sacrifices, before you slaughtered the animal you brought for your sins, you would, in the same words it puts here, lay your hands on the head of it and confess your sins. The recognition here is that the Levites are standing in for the firstborn, They're taking the place. And so Israel, probably through their leaders, don't imagine all the millions of people laying their hands on the Levites, but through their leaders, lay their hands on these men and recognize you're doing what we should all be doing. You're standing in the place of our firstborn sons that God claimed as his own. Okay, so that's what the practice recognizes. Okay. Uh, Verse 11, Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel that they may do the service of the Lord. Why a wave offering? Clearly, nobody picks up a Levite and waves him before the Lord here, right? It uses a wave offering because that's the one that was symbolic and not burned up, okay? So you would take a piece of meat or or a piece of like a grain cake and you would wave it before the altar, symbolically offering it for him, even though you weren't going to burn it up on the altar because you were going to eat it. In the same way, this isn't human sacrifice, and so they're being presented to the Lord offered to the Lord, but not in sacrifice. It's just making that distinction for us, okay? Verse 12, the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of bulls. Notice that, okay? So first, they lay their hands on the Levites. Now the Levites lay their hands on the bulls. Why? Because they also need someone to stand in the gap for them. They can't come before the Lord as they are. They're not sinless. They're not perfect. And so they have to lay their hands on a bull and go, what's about to happen to you is what deserves, what what I deserve, Okay? it's a recognition once again of identification and substitution and so they lay their hands on the heads of the bulls and you shall offer the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the lord and make atonement for the levites and you shall set the levites before aaron and his sons and he shall offer them as a wave offering to the lord verse 14 thus you shall separate the levites from among the people of israel and the levites shall be mine And after that, the Levites shall go in and serve at the tent of meeting, and when you've cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering, for they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. I want you to watch the words it uses to describe. First he says, they're mine. Now he says, they are wholly given. Um, Continuing here, uh, instead of all who open the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel, I've taken them for myself. For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both man and of beast. And on that day, I struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I consecrated them for myself. So this is going all the way back to Passover. And when this angel of death passes over all the households, all the ones that aren't protected by the blood of the lamb, right? The firstborn sons die. But in the house of Israel, they don't die. But that's not because they're good and Egypt is bad. It's because of the blood. That's the difference. And so God significantly says, I spared you all. I redeemed you all. And so as a practice from Israel, the firstborn will always be mine. But practically, in position of that, instead is the one tribe, the Levites. Verse 19, I've given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel to do the service of the people of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel that there may be no plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near the sanctuary. Verse 20, thus did Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel to the Levites according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, the people of Israel did to them. And the Levites purified themselves from sin and washed their clothes, and Aaron offered them as a wave offering before the Lord, and Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. And after that, the Levites went in to do their service in the tent of meeting before Aaron and his sons, as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. And then we have kind of an appendix here about um, when they retire. And so it says here in verse 23, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this applies to the Levites from 25 years old and upwards. They shall come to do duty in the service of the tent of meeting and from the age of 50 years, they shall withdraw from the duty of the service to serve no more. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall not do service. Thus you shall do the Levites in assigning their duties. Remember the Levites carry parts of the tabernacle. And so once they hit 50, they are retired. They no longer do that part, even though they still have some, Role to play. Okay. Now, in terms of preparation, we are really rolling. We're almost to that first mile on the, uh, on the odometer. Okay, But before, we have to deal with something that came up. Now, I want you to notice here in chapter 9, verse 1, it says, the Lord spoke to uh, Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now, if you're not paying attention, we just hopped in a time machine. The things we just read about, those were happening in the second year, later in the year. Now it dials back to the first month of the second year, but the reason it's coming up here is because there was a problem. There was an issue, and so that issue is being dealt with. Notice what it says, verse 2. He had said, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. On the 14th day of this month, at twilight, you should keep it at its appointed time. According to all the statutes and its rules, you should keep it. So Moses told the people that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover in the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So the people of Israel did. Everything good there, but here's why we're hearing about it now. Here's why it's being repeated for us now. Verse 6, And there were certain men who were unclean through touching a dead body so that they could not keep the Passover on that day, and they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. And those men said to him, We're unclean through touching a dead body. Why are we kept from bringing the Lord's offering in its appointed time among the people of Israel? And Moses said to them, Wait, that I may hear what the Lord will command concerning you. Okay. And so they have to stay away from the tabernacle because they are ceremonially unclean because they've encountered death, okay? And so there's, there's a period of time and then a washing. But the way it happens is that period of time before they're clean again, here comes Passover, and so they can't participate. And so Moses says... Let me go inquire of the Lord. And this is what God tells him in verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If any one of you or your descendants is unclean through touching a dead body or is on a long journey, he shall still keep the Passover of the Lord. Okay. Now, notice two things here. One, he says, Despite the fact that you're unclean, you got to keep the Passover. And two, we're only talking about the Passover. We've laid out seven different high holy holidays for Israel only this one gets the exception, okay? Let's continue. Verse 11, in the second month on the 14th day at twilight, they shall keep it. So here's the other weird thing. He's not saying unclean doesn't really matter. We're just going to look the other way for this one. It's no big deal. He says, no, a month later, you're going to celebrate it on your own, okay? And so they're celebrating it, but later, imagine, imagine if your place of work was having a Christmas party And you got sick and couldn't make it. And they said, that's okay. You can just have one in January. Right? Doesn't this seem like a strange thing? The reason why this is so important is still to come. And so notice what it says. It says that they'll keep it on the 14th day at twilight, but it's the second month. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, just like the first one is supposed to be. Verse 12, they shall leave none of it until morning nor break any of its bones. According to all the statutes for Passover, they shall keep it. Same Passover, different day. Verse 13, but if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey, fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. Okay? This is why it needs to be practiced. Because it's essential. It's an aspect of what it means to be the people of God that you observe the Passover. All the other holidays are significant and important, but this one has to be observed. Okay? When it says here, this man shall bear his sin, um, and when it says that he's cut off, you should be thinking about the first Passover. You should be thinking about Egypt and what would have happened if you didn't take the time to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost, okay? It's a recognition here that this is super significant. It's serious, so serious that there's going to be a different way to deal with this, okay? So verse... uh, not only do we see this, we also see if somebody's on a long journey. In other words, they realize they're not going to make it in time. So this is looking forward to the promised land. Whenever the tabernacle settled in the promised land, if you live in another part of the land and it's too far for you to travel, you have an excuse, but you have to just travel and get there a month later. Okay. Um, but it says, if you don't have that excuse and you miss it, That's a big deal. It's really serious. And it keeps going. Look at verse 14. If a stranger sojourns among you and would keep the Passover of the Lord according to the statute of the Passover and according to its rules, so shall he do. You shall have one statute, both for the sojourner and the native. In other words, not only does it say every Israelite must celebrate this, even if you have to do a second version of it a month later, but also anyone who's not an Israelite and is living with you is welcome to celebrate this. There's an invitation involved. Listen, Passover is the front door of the people of Israel. It's what made them the people of Israel. It's what distinguished them ultimately and finally from other people and set them aside as belonging to the Lord because they were those who were under the blood, okay? And so here we see that it's totally open to anyone who wants to attend, but it's absolutely required for those who call themselves Israelites, okay? The, the thing is here, it's stressing the significance of this because Passover is the definition of redemption. It's the full, total picture of what God was going to do in Jesus Christ and what he'd done in Israel. That's why when, when um, James, John, and Peter go up the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and they see Jesus glorified before them, speaking with Elijah and with Moses... It tells us in the Gospel of Luke that what they were discussing was his departure. And the word there in the Greek is actually just a transliteration of the Hebrew word exodus. It's the Greek word exodus, okay? They were discussing his exodus. That passage in Luke says, hey, everything that happened in the exodus, it's going to happen again, but this time it's not just a practice round. This time it's for real. This is why Jesus so significantly can say, I am the gate I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father but through me. Okay? This is what inside and outside means. To be a Christian is not to be near Christ or to know about Christ, but to be in Christ. To be under the blood. And so the significance of that here is stressed all the way back with Israel. Israel. Now, we're almost there. We only have one more thing to cover, which is how do we know when to pack up and go? How do we know when to stop when we're going, right? So, verse 15. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle of the tent of testimony, and evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night, and whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped, okay? So how do they know when to leave? How far to go? Which direction to head in? The presence of God in this cloud is going to lift up and they go, okay, it's time to go. It's going to move and they're going to follow and then it's going to settle and they're going to rebuild the tabernacle at the base of it, okay? And so (coughs) what we're seeing here is effectively a a couple of things, okay? Uh, let's, Let's read a little bit further. Verse 18, at the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in the camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. So what's this saying? It's not, hey, we're going to leave every Monday morning, right? Sometimes they'll get up the next morning and the cloud leaves and they pack up again, even though they built it yesterday. Other times they settle in and weeks go by and they just stay put. Okay. In fact, nowhere in the book of Numbers does it ever explain the rationale or the reason to this. This just has to do with the fact that God is God and we are not. Okay. He is leading the ship and he doesn't feel the need to sit them down and go, okay, let me explain the next two weeks to you and I'll tell you why it's going to be like that. Okay. The recognition here is that God will lead them and that the only way they move forward is with him. Just because I love to quote it, let me remind you of the words of George MacDonald, who says, anyone who seeks to do anything apart from God must either fail miserably or succeed more miserably. Israel is in a position of dependence. They are to be led. They cannot lead on their own. They are protected uh, by this. In fact, this is ultimately about God's presence. Why does Israel need a tour guide? Because they're not like any other nation. God is in their midst. And so it's a unique thing. And so verse uh, 21, and sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning and when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. If it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time, the cloud continued over the tabernacle abiding there. The people of Israel remained in the camp. and did not set out, but when it, when they, when it lifted, they set out and the command of the Lord they camped, and the command of the Lord they set out. That phrase sandwiches what we just read. It's how it starts, and it's how it ends. The emphasis here is that God is calling the shots, okay? They kept the charge of the Lord and the command of the Lord by Moses. I want to finish chapter 10 very quickly. It's very simple. The first thing we see here is that the way everybody's going to know this is going on right, is not that everybody's going to see the cloud moving. This is a huge camp we're talking about. Some of them are intense. Some of them are busy. So how do they know when the cloud is on the move? God calls Moses here to build two silver trumpets. Verse one, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, make two silver trumpets of hammered work. You shall make them and you should use them for summoning the congregation and for breaking camp. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves to you at the entrance of the tent of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the chiefs and the heads of the tribes of Israel shall gather themselves to you. When you blow an alarm, the camps that are on the east side shall set out. And when you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are on the south shall set out. An alarm is to be blown whenever they are set out. So what we're seeing here is different ways these trumpets are used to do different things. There's one way to blow so all of Israel assembles. There's another way so only the leaders come. There's one way to blow so that uh, the first side goes and then the second side knows it's now their time in the train. Uh, And then we'll see there's another way to blow it for battle. And so it continues here. Uh, Verse 7, when the assembly is to be gathered together, you shall blow a long blast, but you shall not sound an alarm. And the sons of Aaron, the priests shall blow the trumpets. The trumpet shall be to you for you a perpetuate st- statute throughout your generations. And when you go to war in your land against an adversary who oppresses you, you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord your God. And you shall be saved from your enemies. I love that it throws that in there. Because what were we expecting it to say? And you will sound an alarm and the army will bat- gather and go to war. But here, even this, even the battle, even the armies being gathered is under the heading of... If you blow the trumpets, you'll be remembered before the Lord, and he will save you from your enemies, okay? And so first we saw that God is their leader, and now we see that God is their protector. These are major emphases in the book of Numbers. Verse 10, on the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feasts, and at the beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. And so, here it says, also, you're going to use them to celebrate. During the high holy days, when the sacrifices are being offered, you will blow them so all of the nation knows. Think, for example, of the Day of Atonement, okay? The most significant moment in Israel's annual calendar is when that high priest comes out of the tabernacle and declares that the sacrifice has been accepted. But the tabernacle is a small tent. It's only a little bit bigger than the building we're standing in, right? Right? And so these trumpets proclaim farther, like amplification, so everybody knows and can celebrate together what's going on. Now, we don't have time for this tonight, and I didn't take time for it uh, in my preparation, but clearly here, with the creation of these two trumpets, the symbolism of trumpets is shaped, and they show up a lot in the New Testament, especially in prophecy, Okay, and so it, ta- it says, hey, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be at the sound of a loud trumpet. Where's that idea coming from? It's coming from this text. Right? But we see that there's so many parts to what those trumpets mean. It means a gathering of people. It means a celebration. It means a calling of the saints for war. There's so much more going on. I just wanted to throw it out there for further study. It's not hard to do a word search for the word trumpet. Um, but let's finish the chapter here. Finally, almost 10 chapters in, Israel takes their first steps away from Mount Sinai. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day, uh, 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. Side note, that means after the leftover Passover was celebrated. Did you notice that? Second month on the 20th day. So Passover, everybody has gone through before they're on the move. Same as it was with Egypt on the way to Sinai. Okay. Continuing, verse 12, the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai and the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. Is that the promised land? No, it's not. It's more wilderness, but it's movement. Verse 13, they set out for the first time at the command of the Lord of Moses, the standard of the camp of the people of Judah set out first by their companies, and over their companies was Nashon, the son of Adimadab, and over the company of the tribe of the people of Issachar was Nathaniel the son of Zuar, and over the company of the tribe of the people was Zebulon, was Elaab the son of Helon. What we see happening here is everything that's being prepared going together now. Okay. And so the cloud moves, the trumpets are blown, and they start to leave in order under the standards that we saw last week on the sides that they're supposed to be in. All of this is just recorded to show that Israel gets the picture and is being obedient. Okay. In fact, we see more of that in verse 17. When the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon and the sons of Meri who carried the tabernacle set out. And the standard of the camp of Reuben set out by their companies, and over their companies was Eleazar the son of Shedur, And over the company of the tribe of the people Simeon was Shelemiel, and Zuris uh, Shaddai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Gad was Elisif, the son of Duel. And so it goes through the whole list. We get the complete roster of the people of Israel, tribe by tribe, order by order, and then there's one last thing. Verse 29. And Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midnight, Moses' father-in-law. Okay? Now, either this is Jethro's other name, or more likely, this is Jethro's son. And so what it's saying here is, Ruel is Jethro, and this is his son Hobab. And Moses has this conversation for him. This is what he says. We're setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us, and we'll do good to you, for the Lord has promised good to Israel. But he said to them, I'll not go, I'll depart to my own land and to my kindred. He said, please do not leave us, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go down with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. And so notice what happens here. He says, hey, you know the land, Hobab. Come with us. You can tell us about the, you know, inhabitants over the next hill. You can tell us where to find water. And that's actually almost incongruent with what we just read. It it almost sounds like, wait, I thought the smoke was going to guide and protect, and now, Moses, is this just an act of unbelief that he says, hey, Hobab, I'd feel a lot better if you were with us. Notice that it doesn't read that way because even the invitation he makes is mostly for Hobab's benefit. He says, God is going to be good to us. Don't you want a piece of that pie? He says, in fact, we promise to be good for you because we're going to have a lot to share. And so... He's convincing him to come here, and all I want to point out to you is that we too often make a division between the pragmatic pragmatic reality of life and the spiritual reality of life. And so we say, how is God going to guide me? Is it going to be through signs and wonders, or is it going to be through wise counsel? The answer is yes, okay? It's always been yes. And so we see here both Moses knows God is in control, and he knows how to make wise decisions. And we should be the same way, okay? So, verse 33, they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day, whenever they set out from camp. Here we see the last thing that the cloud does. It doesn't just lead them, it also keeps them protected from the sun, Okay, that's what it means here when it says that the cloud was over them. And so it's moving in a direction and they're following the front of that cloud, but it's also hanging back over them to provide them protection because after all, they are basically in the desert. Verse 35, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Every time it's on the move, they remember, they remind themselves of who God is. Why? Because they're in hostile territory. Every day they set out, they're moving closer and closer to people who may not react that great. And so he speaks every time, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and those who hate you flee before you. And when he rested, he said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000, the thousands of Israel. And so here we get the setup for what happens in Numbers. Unfortunately, this is the last good chapter. From here on, it's downhill, okay? Everything's designed as it's supposed to be. But God has designed it as it's supposed to be for sinful human beings and it's about to get messy. So, anyways, let's pray and uh, go for the night. God, I know that oftentimes we read books like this and we find uh, ourselves wondering if there's any overlap between this book and our own lives. But the truth is, we're much like the people of Israel. We're in route. You've given us a final destination and we have not yet Arrived, We have to proclaim, like Paul did, that we have not yet attained. But we know that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to the completion of it in the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. We recognize that we also are in need of your blessing, of your protection, of your guidance. We know also, Lord, that we stand in your presence solely because of the blood of the sacrifice of your Son, and that that's where we find our identity. And that that's where we place our hope. And we also have, uh, have an opportunity to take what's, rest of, what's left of our lives and offer it fully and freely to you. Knowing that no gift we give will be despised. And that knowing no sacrifice we make will be wasted. And so I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to see our lives as wilderness wanderers learning what it's like to be dependent upon God and headed towards a land that, that is promised to us. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, have a good night.